Morning, everybody. I'm Dr. Hammer, and today on Tonic 7, we're going to be discussing the topic of national divorce. I'll be introducing it as I had the misfortune of suggesting the topic in the first place, despite the fact that I'm not appearing in this video. So, national divorce. What do we mean whenever we're talking about this? Well, what it is in its very simplest form is the idea that you have one polity and it's going to split into two, right? Just like a normal divorce of any other uh, private relationship, what was one is now going to become two, as the participants decide they're better off without each other and are going to go their own way. This seems simple, and so simple you might not need to have its own particular term for it, but the reason we do is what it's not. Right? It is not inherently a revolution. Revolutions usually refer to things such as taking over the original government, putting new people in power, but maintaining that same apparatus of the state. Right? The American Revolution, which we're going to be celebrating here in a few days here in the States, is kind of misnamed in that regard, right? It wasn't so much a revolution, but as a splitting apart from the parent country. Likewise, it's not necessarily a rebellion. Could be, things go badly, sometimes it turns that way, but generally a national divorce is something that's affected by some sort of parliamentary process where you, know, you might have the uh, legislatures of the individual states or individual parts of a nation vote to leave that goes through some sort of national process and yeah 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 things come out the other end right? if you're thinking of things like brexit or you know, scotland periodically has referendums to leave the uk that sort of situation is what's going on there and likewise it isn't a civil war right when we talk about national divorce civil war might be the eventual outcome if again things go to hell in a handbasket we're going to talk about that in a second but in general completely separate sort of situation, right? So, why is this relevant? Why are we talking about it now? And why would anybody decide to do this? Well, the biggest reason, and pretty much the reason why polities have split up historically at all, is that we have very big political differences between people and regions within a single state, right? Those of you who read my blog, which you should, uh, might remember an older post of mine about America being an accidental empire. And the whole point of that was that the United States, as it's constructed, is, historically speaking, one of the bigger empires in history. There's been empires that had more land space, but they usually had fewer people. There's been empires that had more people, but they were usually in a smaller geographic region. The United States is right up there when, it, when you look at it in terms of the number of people spread out over the amount of space. And that's not counting the space between California and Hawaii, we're talking just landmass, right? And what this means is there's a lot of different cultures, a lot of different people that want to have different sorts of governments, have different senses of right and wrong, what the rules should be, what they shouldn't be, and that this tends to pull polities apart. Right? Particularly in the case of the United States, with our federal system, one thing that's been successful for us is that the, the large scale you know, nation-state level, our federal system has historically not been very intrusive in day-to-day -day lives, right? So people in California can have different rules from people in Florida who have different rules from people in Montana, and it's very state-based with only a light layer of federal on top of it. Past hundred years, however, we've seen increasing, not only increasing amount, but increasing rate of growth of federal uh, meddling, basically, in state-level issues, which has caused a lot of, well, a lot more tension. And at the same time, at the state level, we've seen a remarkable amount of people starting to self-sort in a way we hadn't seen in quite a long time, where 
not only do we have, you know, if you look at the uh, demographic movement, you see an exodus of uh, people from blue states, especially in the last three years, where, you know, they'll leave California for Arizona, or, you know, they'll leave the uh, northeast Pennsylvania, but also northeast of the United States in general, start flowing down South Carolina and Florida. The interesting thing about this, however, is it isn't just a movement of people looking for better economic situations, more jobs, opportunities, which, you know, is pretty common you know, at all times, but we're actually seeing people moving for political reasons. So that is, people leave New York State, they go to Florida. Florida doesn't become more blue. It doesn't start to look more like New York. It becomes more red, which implies that people on the right wing, you know, Republicans and whatnot, are leaving in New York they no longer like and moving for a different political climate and a different set of government down in Florida. Now, this is when this gets important. So we have people that are not only culturally distinct, you know, becoming more polarized politically overall, but they're also becoming geographically distinct. We're having people select into regions that have a closer political alignment to themselves. So we have a nation, instead of being, you know, kind of a vague purpley color with maybe like, you know, some little splotches of red and blue here and there, we get regions that look like very blue state, very red state, and becoming ever more so over time. Right? So both on the geographic and cultural front, we're seeing these splits. But at the same time, as the federal government's becoming more and more important, we also see that this is coming in more and more from one direction. In the United States, typically it's the left that's pushing hard to make sweeping rules at the federal level that then apply to the states. Why is that important? Well, if you can move from New York to Florida to get a better political climate that suits your preferences and sense of right and wrong, great, problem solved, right? You didn't like one state, move to another, we're all still within the United States, but we get to kind of pick our government, right? Debo competition at its finest. However, once things start going through the federal level, we find that, well, now it doesn't matter where you live, you're gonna to have to live like the federal government says, and since the federal government is largely dominated by New York and California, they're gonna follow you, right? So now we have a problem. You could choose your states, can't choose your federal government, unless you split off and make your own. So in the United States, this is the sort of thing that's, you know, starting to percolate through people's minds. It's like, well, what if just being part of the U.S. is a really bad idea overall, and it's just come time to cut ties, go our own way, start our own sort of country, that kind of idea. Right? Now, many people will talk about this as though it's the peak of madness, and actually I'll talk about that more in a second, but, <laughs> you know, there's actually, there's a couple different ways this could go, right? On the one hand, the ideal situation is the sort of thing you might see with maybe a Brexit, but what you might imagine if Scotland does finally vote to leave the UK, right? They vote, people agree, say, okay, well, that's what you decided to do, those are the rules, great. You get to become your own nation state again, form your new government, and things can just actually keep on going the way they were, right? You can imagine that if, you know, Texas were to, to say, nope, we're going to be a republic again, boom, we're out. We're our own, our own state, state of Texas now becomes the nation state of Texas, wonderful. What has to change? Well, nothing really. You could still imagine they're going to have free trade with the relatively free trade at least, with their neighboring states. They might allow, you might have treaties that allow free movement between the United States and former states of the Union, all that kind of deal, right? There's no particular reason things have to go bad. All of the states have lots of, you know, economic ties with each other, lots of cultural ties still, 
it's quite reasonable to say, okay, those can just continue. You can make rules to say, yeah, we're, gonna, we're just going to allow this sort of back and forth in our courses, though you were still part of the group, but now you're something else. Great. Less ideally, you can easily imagine, though, that the federal government or the remaining states might get a little pissy and uh, might decide that, well, no, we're going to start le leveling really high tariffs against your goods, or we're not going to allow free movement between the states like they used to, so... You know, hey, any Texans that used to travel over to Oklahoma to work, you're out of luck, sorry. Right. That can get really ugly. That can be a bit of a problem. You know, they might have strict regulations, say, well, we don't want to have to compete with Texas on these sorts of industries. So, you're out. Right. Or, even less ideally, you might have a situation where the federal government decides that, nope, you don't get to leave. Right. We've, we've had that before here, for those of you who remember uh, your uh, readings into the Civil War. The Union could have just let the southern states leave, but they decided not to. Fought one of the bloodiest uh, wars in American history over the matter. And so you can get into these sort of situations, right? These kind of things can, if approached by a particularly unpleasant federal government or, you know, nation-state level government, spiral into bloody civil war real quickly. But the, the example of the American Civil War should give us pause, right? United States, that's all we care about here, let's face it. <laughs> Sorry, Luke. But if the United States gets to this point, we do have this relatively recent civil war we can lean back on and say, look, we don't want to let this go to war. Let's do this peacefully, right? So why would we even think it would get that bad? Well, I'm a pessimist, so I might think, well, okay, let's see. Maybe we'll just, let's just discount the idea that any sort of politician would have some sort of power lust or venality or just be so stupid they can't prevent this from happening. Hmm. Moving past that, what, what might make these some issues, right? Well, some big issues that we'd have to contend with would be things like who owns the national debt and how much of it, right? If four or five southern states, say the Gulf states, all decide they want to break away from the you know, United States, going to start their own country, the Gulf state nation, okay. Sure, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, all of them, they all decide, yep, we're out. How much of the national debt do they owe? How do we figure out how much do they owe? Right? Do we go back 100 years and see how many of the federal dollars got directed towards you know, those southern states' roles? Do we do it by headcount? All of that starts getting really tricky. And when you're talking about a national debt that's bigger than the GDP of the country for a year, that suddenly becomes like a pretty big deal. Right? It's a lot of tax revenue going away and a lot of debt that needs to be covered. It's unlikely the remaining states are going to share that burden. But on the other side of the ledger, we have all of the federally owned uh, resources in these various states. Right? So you, know, you have things like military bases, tanks, planes, all this hardware, right? ships at dry dock, the dry dock itself. Right? Who owns that? If, you know, Texas decides to leave. Do all the uh, M1A1 Abrams they have parked out back, do they have to be sent back to the federal government or do they stay with Texas? Good question. Right? What about all of the uh, you know, national park lands or federally owned land that has oil reserves on it? Right? You can imagine if Nevada leaves, well, that's going to be a real awkward situation for them since the federal government owns the vast majority of land within the borders of Nevada, is it going to be left with just a little tiny network of roads and a few little towns and that becomes the state of Nevada? Or are they going to want all that space, right? 
Is there going to be a deal where if Texas secedes and says, hey, you got, yeah, United States, we'll give you back these planes and tanks that have been parked in our backyard, but you got to take it off of our share of the national debt, right? These are big issues that would need to have people coming together to actually decide. And if you find that, you know, the people on one side don't want to come to the bargaining table and actually work this out cleanly, well, just like any kind of personal divorce, you can imagine that getting really ugly really fast. So, as we're talking about this, I think one of the big questions should be, is the national divorce necessary or inevitable? Is this something that's definitely looming on the horizon? And if so, how do we keep it from turning bloody? What can we do to kind of prepare ourselves so should the situation arises, we have a good game plan, a good idea of what sort of things should be done to keep it from turning into a bloodbath that sweeps across the nation and wrecks things and instead turns into a nice, hey look, we voted, here's your stuff, I'm taking my stuff, we're out. Right? For myself, and since this is the last thing I'll get to talk about in this conversation, too bad, I think that it's really, it's neither necessary nor inevitable, but it's very largely dependent on whether or not we can, as a people, roll back a little bit of our dependence on the federal government in terms of actually making rules for the entire nation. I think the more the nation starts to behave as one uh, overbearing, top-down system that says, hey, I don't care which state you're in, everybody has to follow exactly the same rules, I think the less likely it is that the, you know, the accidental American empire is going to be able to hang together. Unfortunately, I think that's also not likely to happen. So I'm, my guess would be, perhaps not in our lifetime, but over maybe the lifetime of our children or grandchildren, the question of national divorce is going to be raised. And so why I'm glad that we're talking about it today, because I think this is going to become uh, a, a salient issue within the next hundred years or so. And it's good to have these sorts of conversations well before it happens, before it becomes a question of the turmoil and tumult of you know, competing factions. Um, and I'll just close out with the idea that you know, John here might appreciate, uh, in light of some of his latest writings, that these sorts of things take time. They can go for a very, very long time before the small sparks of stress and strain finally turn into something that has to pull apart a nation. You know, just sticking to our July 4th theme, you know, it's worth remembering that Bacon's Rebellion occurred over 100 years before the American Revolution, but for the exact same reasons. So what we're seeing today might not turn into something so dramatic as national divorce, but the fact that we're talking about it at all very strongly suggests that one's in the offing. So, thank all you guys, and I hope you enjoy all the rest of the conversation. Have a good one. Happy Fourth of July. So thanks to uh, Eric for that excellent analysis. Um, I'll just start off and say, you know, I, I agree with his conclusion about the only way ahead to avoid something like this would be for the federal government to do less. You know, I think that's really straightforward. The problem is, is that the people that have all the power right now on the left that are kind of accelerating is they don't, they don't understand that what they're doing isn't sustainable. I don't think that they appreciate how deeply unpopular um, everything, like a lot of the policies that they advance are. They don't understand populism. They think that it can be 
suppressed, uh, that the popular will of the people can be suppressed in favor of institutions that are increasingly seen as corrupt and incompetent. Um, I just don't think that it's sustainable. I think they're going to be forced to confront that reality at some point. I think that the reason that they haven't is because of, you know, a vast AI driven censorship apparatus that's allowed them to convince themselves that, you know, they're not in a tiny little echo chamber with the majority of Americans finding their beliefs and desires um, with things like the Second Amendment and First Amendment. You know, we just saw with affirmative action, um, you know, there was expected to be a big backlash over Roe v. Wade being appealed. They, they don't understand that that's, you know, the, the majority of Americans are not with them. And that the only reason that they're able to maintain their power is uh, through this vast censorship apparatus. But I think we have their number on that. And if we do a good job of countering that, then it's going to make it so that their departure from reality doesn't continue to expand. Because as I've kind of talked about before, the bigger the gap between uh, reality and whatever narrative um, you're operating off of, the more disastrous uh, the the collapse and and um, you know coming together uh, of of reality with the the narrative is going to be like in the in the case that I use in late stage bureaucracy you know Chernobyl was an example of that you know it happened because they had you know departed so far from reality uh, but those are my opening thoughts and I will pass it on to whoever wants to uh, continue on the conversation. What you said, like, oh, go ahead, who's John? Go ahead. Ha, beat you, beat you. Yeah, yeah if, I, if, I, if, I, if I can jump in as a uh, non-American outside observer. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I, I kind of wonder if Doc is being a little bit optimistic and sort of like pushing things out to like century timescales because, you know, things do seem to be getting extremely unstable. This is certainly a sort of um, fourth turning Turchin-esque kind of period we're in right now, uh, a crisis point. So, I mean, I wouldn't really be surprised if the U.S. fell apart within a decade. Um, but then, on the other hand, maybe it won't come to that and uh, it might actually be just like um, a sort of de facto rather than de jure separation. If you look at what's already happened in the US over the last 10, 15 years, um, you've had an increasing tendency for states to simply ignore federal law on uh, issues that they, th they felt were particularly important. So you, know, you have um, blue states uh, establishing themselves as sanctuary states and just ignoring federal immigration. You have uh, also blue states ignoring federal drug law and uh, legalizing marijuana, despite the fact that it remains a, um, an illegal narcotic at the federal level. Uh, and you also have a lot of red states kind of ignoring federal gun laws, for example. Um, or declaring that you know, if they go too far, they will certainly be Second Amendment sanctuary states, things like this. Uh, and the interesting thing is that in 
most cases, the federal government has kind of turned a blind eye to that. Now, there's certainly the argument to be made that's because, you know, there's elements in the federal government that agree with those policies. Um, and that's true. But I think there's also an element of the feds don't want to push things too much because they kind of understand that actually their, their power is far more fragile than it is. And so long, or it's far more fragile than it, it um, seems to be. And that if they push things too far, some governor somewhere might just say, well, screw this. We're going our own way. I'm making myself king. Uh, and that would... And if, and if he succeeded in that, then others, and then the whole thing falls apart. So better to kind of maintain um, a sort of illusion of control where everyone kind of continues with a game of make-believe while increasingly power at a de facto level kind of devolves down to the levels of individual states and cities, uh, which, you know, if you push that process far along into the future, you end up with a kind of um, like a feudal Holy Roman Empire kind of situation where on paper, the United States of America still exists. It still has a Congress, it still has a president, you know, you still have elections, it's all these things. But uh, at the level of practical everyday power, they've been completely sidelined. And what really matters is who's in the governor's mansion, um, who's in the state legislature, who's elected mayor of the city state, you know, things like that. Uh, so that's, that's one way I could see things kind of playing out. Um, and I think that would probably in practice be acceptable enough to everyone because, I mean, who really cares what the pieties are in Washington, D.C., as long as you don't have to follow them, as long as you can kind of ignore them, as long as the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. Uh, it doesn't matter how fanatical they are in the capital. Um, What you said about yeah. that, like the whole Holy Roman Empire model, I mean, that's kind of how it was supposed to be, uh, at least uh, originally. And, and it seemed like it kind of was, but over time, it just got eroded, you know, because that was original model was that it wouldn't matter if you were in a small town and, you know, whatever state. The D.C. really didn't have, a, you know, it was more foreign policy that uh, operating the post office, things like that, printing money. Um but the one thing, Grant, you had mentioned um, that they don't realize how unpopular or divisive their uh, beliefs or their ideologies are that they're trying to force on everybody. And I, and I think it's true for the majority of the true believer, NPC, whatever uh, folks. But there's uh, some of the, I guess, psychopaths behind the scenes. They have to know, like, you know, George Soros, right? Like this guy contributing to... Um, DA races, you know, to try to get uh, candidates elected that will just not prosecute crime, you know, it's particularly violent crime or, 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 or quality of life crimes, but will only prosecute, you know, crimes where, um, you know, against political opponents of the regime, or if anybody stands up to the criminals, you know, like Daniel Penny did in uh, on the subway, you know, or the bodega owner you know, who uh, was in the, uh, from the Dominican Republic and had uh, been attacked by uh, this woman's boyfriend because her EBT, you know, food stamp card declined and he wouldn't give her the potato chips that she was trying to buy. So 
she brings her boyfriend up to uh, you know attack him. She's got a knife, and then he takes, I guess, the, the knife from one of them and stabs him in self defense, and you know he's charged. Uh, I guess due to public outcry, he was uh, released. But you know, the, I mean, just that kind of thing where you're, and this isn't just a one off thing. It's like across the country, every place where this crime is out of control, there's like this Soros funded DA behind it all you know and so you say okay george soros knows what he's doing he knows he's trying to collapse the system he knows he's going to create disorder and chaos well, and maybe well, try well, to well, profit well, dan, from it, but, dan dan yeah. the uh if social and if society was the way you wanted it to be social engineering wouldn't be necessary right so at a certain level i think you're totally right they the, the social engineers have to know that their policies are unpopular well, not just unpopular. I mean, in the case of George Soros, I, I really don't think he's trying to build society in in a better way where he's like, oh, it's going to work better for everybody and it's going to be more just and more, you know, people are going to have a better quality of life and the and overall people are going to be happier. Like the net utility is going to be better. I think the dude's just, he's trying to crash the system. He knows this will do it, destabilize and undermine, you know, and, and cause the whole thing to sink and, and into chaos. And he's hoping like he, this is his mo to profit off of the chaos. Dude's a freaking demon and a snake, and and you multiply him by however many people in this elite circle there are. You know, uh, as George Carlin said, it's a big club, and you ain't in it. The folks that are in it, though, I mean, these are some evil motherfuckers. That it's not like like you got your true believers, and that's probably the majority of the folks on the left. They really do think, or really do believe, whatever it is that they're you know, preaching, um, maybe they think is more popular than it is because where they live, it is the the norm for people to believe that. Or maybe they know that it's not popular in the heartland, but think they're on the moral, the right side of history. So they're going to change things, you know, and a hundred years from now, books will be written celebrating them. And they're, well, again, you know, again, again, but, again, like even with the true believers, like in the foot soldiers to the left, right? Like um, if you talk to them, it's really interesting because on the one hand, they'll, they'll do the whole like, oh, democracy, yay thing. But on the other, they really do see themselves as a revolutionary vanguard whose job it is to, uh, you know, proselytize to and um, lead the masses, right? Who are yeah. these kind of backward, benighted, you know, uh, herd who need to be shown the right way to do things. It, implicit in that is this recognition that the majority of people, in fact, do not hold your values um which then directly implies that your values are unpopular that you are in the minority and that in a de democratic you know situation interpreted as will of the majority prevailing you would lose right so i mean that this is this kind of like schizophrenic fracture uh at the heart of the, the leftist ideology but I, to a degree i think it's, it's simply what? very self-serving um yeah, Mark, if I, if I could jump in uh, for a second. Soros guy. Yeah, go, Mark. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. You had something to respond to John to directly, so go ahead. Oh, no, I mean, I'm pretty, no, you, you go ahead. Okay, so like, um, so one of the things that I've been grappling with lately is this concept of um, coherence between thought and word, let's say. So in other words, like we're all, becoming a bunch of mind readers um, and maybe not the most stable kind. Uh, so when we say, well, you know, the people on this side of whatever divide, when we say, 
they mean what they say, they must mean what they say. That is that is an assumption that we're making. Um, it's and, and it's and, and as in relation to what Luke wrote just this morning, I think it's one of many assumptions that we that are kind of hardwired into us. In other words, like their incentive structures must be exactly as they say they are. Um, and I think in nine times out of ten cases, that's possibly not true at all. Like I was thought of the. Um, do you do you guys ever see the Dark Knight? The uh, it was the second Batman movie, multiple uh, times. And it begins, it, or I think it begins with a, a heist. And essentially the elements of this bank heist or, or the, the ethos that underlies all of them is sort of hidden from every participant. So every participant in the bank heist in that opening scene believes that they have the secret information. In other words, outwardly, they're projecting this idea of team, that they're approaching this project as a team. Yet each one of those operatives on the team believes that they're the ones that know what's really going on, despite what they say, everything else that they say is subterfuge in order to emulate the supposed outlines of this project, robbing this bank. And so I've, 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 I've been starting to think of um, people on what we call the progressive left um, as being maybe similar to that structure. In other words, like they all parrot the same messages, which are all you know, you know, almost anti-philosophic or, or masophic in like their, in their, in their priors, but it's sort of like what, you know, and so we say like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it's like somebody will say something on that side of things and you say like, well, well we could easily pick that apart by logic, formal or otherwise. And so it's sort of like, and they continue to say it, I think maybe because it's more sort of, you know, that's the external externality of prayer. It's not necessarily something it's part of the uniform. It's not necessarily what they're getting out of it, you know? And so just to bring this back into the realm of the discussion of national divorce and, and also what Danny was saying about like Soros, I said like, okay, so suppose there is this bulk, balkanization into, I don't know, two or more nations, so to speak, um, that happens Again, like when people talk about national divorce, I, I read all around. I read left and right. I read libertarian viewpoints uh, and debates. And like what it seems like most people that say they want national divorce really want is something like federalism. That's what they really want. And if you explore and you ask them, that's what they'll describe at the end. But like the concept of national divorce, it seems to be something that's far more dramatic, which forces people to take a side. Which is well, essentially, I think, I think the reason yeah. people are talking about national uh, national divorce now is because of the extremism uh, of the other side and and the intolerance of it, right? So, like as as, as long as you know all, all participants in the system, in particular those, well, I mean, really all participants in the system are sort of like willing to like live and let live, and like we don't really care what they do over but there, they're, but they're and, not. That's the point. But I'm arguing, point, I'm arguing right? that they're not. I'm arguing that their incentive structures are hidden from us and, and from each other in many cases. And so like we, part of the reason that I took up the pen in the first place, I think most of you guys know, is that I was concerned that maybe we weren't seeing the enemy's true face and we weren't really considering, we were just, in other words, we were approaching it as though it was rational and, and, and logical and and mm -hmm. could be um you know it could be somehow like brought about to reason through debate or through even something like like we're talking about here oh some sort owned, of a treaty owned with facts and know. logic yeah so i mean this was i guess maybe the main critique actually I would have had with uh doc's um intro it kind of gets it kind of touches on that 
which is, you know, he's kind of approaching it as like, you know, rational adults sitting down around the negotiating table, uh, haggling over, you know, the, the economically optimal utility maximization. And like, yeah, if we were dealing with like rational adults, like that would be the way to go. Unfortunately, we're dealing with religious facts. Um, exactly. And yeah, go ahead, John. Finish. Yeah, but I, I well, want to I mean, pull so off like, of that at some point. Well, I mean, so this, you know, okay, so say you have like a national divorce kind of thing, right? Does do the religious fanatics in the federal government and in the blue states, do they say, oh, that's fine? No, of course not, because that's less resources for them on the one hand uh, to the parasite off of, but, you know, more fundamentally, um, that's people who are escaping from their uh, cultural mission, right? Who are reversing the tide of history. This cannot be allowed. Um, like that's, that would imply that perhaps history does not go in one direction and that would strike at the very core of their identity. So um, this could never be permitted. And I think it would almost certainly lead to war as a direct consequence. Yes. Of that. Yeah. yeah, eventually and probably, probably faster, more quickly rather than, than probably, over a gradual period of time. Probably very, very rapidly. Yes, yes. And part of the and part of the reason for that, I think, is that when we do that, like if we were to draw those lines as hard and fast lines, as some people seem wanting to do, like in other words, a legal, we'll say legal, I don't know, it's really meta-legal sort of separation into a bunch of various states. Well, there's there's another question that I have is who's really in charge of those states? Like in other words, like and also in defining and allowing the enemy to reach its apotheosis through statehood which is what we would be doing by drawing that line. We'd be saying, you must go to this side of the line or the other side. And in doing so, I think we might be allowing them to really reach the full you know, fruition, for lack of a better word, of what it is they are. And what it is mm-hmm. they are is an incentive that is unspoken, I believe, is unspoken, and really can be like, you know, past all of the waves of pseudo-sophistication, and, and other bullshit. I think at the bottom of it is, you know, again, envy, wrath, um, pride. Like we have, in other words, we have, a, we, we, we will be in, in doing that, in creating that final separation, we will be allowing them to become an evil kingdom. And what sprang yes. to mind was the, um, was Christ's story, his parable of the wheats and the wheat and the shaft, right? You know, the guys know the parable. And so the, the practical wisdom that Jesus was trying to impart through that parable was something along the lines of, um, you know, when an evil person has sown our field with weeds, essentially in the middle of the night while we were sleeping, which sounds pretty much like the story of the West for the past at least century, but I think more. Mm-hmm. And so this evil person comes in the middle of the night, sows weeds in your wheat field. And your instinct is once you see the weeds is to start pulling up those weeds. You know, this is the idea of um, um, inextricability, right? There's, there's, there, your, your, your wheat, you know, that this wheat will not grow as robust. It will be plagued for its development cycle. But he says, no, wait, wait to pull the weeds until it's time for harvest, which means that we, on the one side, on the side of, let's say, human, the human singularity or the truth or whatever you like to call it, like it would mean that, like, it basically was saying, like, timing is everything. Like you can't, like you have to make sure you've developed yourself 
um, uh, into your most possible robust form before you can harvest and therefore yank up the weeds first and then harvest the crops. And I don't think we're there. I think that like a lot of evidence, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we also need we have a lot of work to do before we be ready to extricate well, these, ourselves. Yeah. These, these things, these things follow like a whole escalation. Right? Yeah, no, um, I, I, there's a whole logical progression to them. So, I mean, the, the, if you had the separation, sorry, Luke, I'll let you speak in a second. I just wanted to say, uh, if you had the separation and the other side kind of becomes like the evil kingdom, as it were, I think that would also on, on the good side, um, helped crystallize things. Cause there's a lot of people who do sort of still kind of have that. I just want to grill mentality uh and they just, they just want to be left alone right but if they then really see that no like, first of all the other side is not going to leave you alone second of all look at the atrocities that they're committing like you know um behind their own borders that would turn it into a religious war i think on both sides so now it's not it would it would and you would almost certainly have a civil war then because then it would not be a matter of one side trying to impose its will on the other it's sort of both would be trying to liberate the other side right um anyhow just wanted to say that go ahead yeah no i, I want to uh, say something along the same lines because i i had a similar thought you know when when i heard you talk about it now um that actually um it's the the question is like i mean i'm the the diversity hire here right so i i look from the outside uh on the us but are you guys ready for that kind of thing right i mean that's that's the question i mean are are I mean, I would include Western Europe probably too, but are we ready for that kind of stuff, right? I mean, um, it it strikes me, and and you you guys have uh, touched on this as well, right? So that it it strikes me a bit as a almost like a bit of a childish overreaction in a sense, right? So I mean, not overreaction in the sense that it's not bad, you know, like out there, and it's not understandable the the feeling uh, that you know you want to maybe like create your own a little nation or whatever but it's challenging in the sense that it's a it's a reaction right it's like um you look on twitter oh my god you know like look look what these guys are doing you know so oh, what would you like let's separate you know and and if you're like in the in a reactive state like that you know that's that's just not um a good place to be it's 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 immature you know um and i i we talked with the mind matters guys we talked about ernst jünger's work right um and and he like you know he he lived through like he fought in world war one and lived through the nazis you know uh, then lived through the whole like uh separation in germany and all that and and he, he was all about you know this idea um how can you get like revitalize the idea of freedom you know um because it seems to be like when you live under a, a crazy tyranny like that, you know, and, and historically we have seen that too. Um, it, you kind of, um, it's it's not enough to say like, oh my God, you know, I, I want my candy back, right? It's, it's there's something lost, right? And and it needs to be uh, regained by, by, a con, by a conscious struggle, you know, it's, people need to change, you know, they need to develop. Uh, to wise up you know it's 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 all of that and to my mind you know only then can you hope of you know like achieving something new something better um and uh yeah and so i think i i like mark with what you 
what you said, you know, like that it's the same question basically is do people really understand what, what's happening? Uh, are they, do, do they have the inner resource resources? Uh, are they like strong enough, you know? And, and if you, if you do it like that, you know, just as a reaction, um, we, we've seen how, how that can go historically. And, and it's just, uh, do we, do we really think that uh, a new, like a succession, you know, it would it it would work, you know, in in any um, <laughs> any feasible sense. And also, um, another aspect might be that we just don't have any idea what's coming next, right? So, um, it might be that external circumstances like dictate what what will happen anyway. I mean, there's just so much things that could go out of hand now and at any moment right so and there's a whole dynamic in in the whole thing so it, it might also uh, and and to handle that again you need that 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 rediscovery of what it means to be free in a, you know in a in an inner in inner state and i mean you you guys had it so good for for so for so long you know um i mean people have here have suffered through the gdr you know and uh and the Soviet system and the Nazis and and all of that, you know, and 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 it's like it's bad, but it can it can wise you up as well, right? And it's just, uh, yeah, I I just uh, wanted to make that point, you know, that um, the, the question, are we ready for that kind of stuff, is really a good one in my mind. I maybe. Oh, go ahead, Grant. Uh, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, I think it is immature. Um, and, you know, it, it, I, I equate it to somebody in a marriage, you know, and, and I know like, it's not like a social contract. Like we didn't actually sign a contract and shit, but like the way that life works is we were born into a country, right? Like that's, that's kind of where we're at and the change that would require, like we have this history, you know? like hundreds of years of history, a way that it's worked well enough in the past and just to discard it because, uh, you know, there's a powerful faction or say your spouse has like borderline personality disorder. It's like trying, how, how do we fix the borderline personality disorder? There's gotta be a way focus, focus your attention on that. And if you fail, you fail, but it's kind of like a commitment that I think that we all have to one another not that we ever explicitly agreed to, but one that we were born into by fate and we just got to deal with it. And I think that that's the mature response is figure out, you know, what is this spiritual conflict? What defines who's on each side? Um, you know, in my mind, I feel like there are ways to break down the postmodernist bullshit that kind of animates that side you know so the the people that have turned their backs on reality there's a way that they operate and if you pick the right level of analysis it's not about logic and reason explicitly but it, it is about attacking them using narratives attacking them with their own principles the the principles that they purport to believe so it gets complicated because there's sociopaths thrown in the mix. And I think that, you know, straight up psychopaths that don't experience empathy exist and they tend to get concentrated in positions of power given the current system. And that's what Harrison writes all about, right? That's what 
pathocracy is and, and phonology. But normal people, the vast majority of people, and a lot of the people that are on the other side of this are neurotypical deep down. Like they have the capacity for empathy. And a lot of people, that's where this all started, is like a, a desire for egalitarianism, seeing people suffer, not liking it. Um, but the, what, what it is, is essentially there's a bunch of competing narratives. Like that's, that's how our psychology works. We have narratives that govern the way we interact. I think the way that the reason our enemies are so crazy is because they have narratives in their head that conflict with one another. And they also conflict with reality more dramatically than others. So like when unforeseen things happen that don't comport to their narrative, that causes cognitive dissonance. Anytime they're confronted with evidence that they have one narrative that conflicts with another, that causes cognitive dissonance, causes mental illness. And so it's not that they lack the capacity to be normal, healthy, productive people that aren't on psychotropic meds in order to get through the day. It's that uh, we don't have the right social technologies or we've, we've lost them. And a lot of those are based in, you know, traditionalism. And this is like the whole tearing down of Chesterton's fence where like traditional values a lot of times corresponded to you know healthier narratives that aren't going to conflict with reality so obviously even though they're not like you know they're not necessarily reality it's not necessarily truth because no narrative that you have in your head corresponds perfectly to truth i think that just perhaps that's what this all comes down to and if we can really understand that and learn how to communicate better then we can avoid, you know, the kind of outcomes that Luke's talking about, which I, I, I think people trivialize the degree to which, um, you know, you don't, don't give up a means of connection. Don't give up a potential shared identity that allows us to connect and be stable. And I think being American is one of those things that we don't want to just discard so easily just because, uh, we're we're frustrated with one another, and it and it appears that there's no way we'll ever uh, cut through the bullshit. Um, Daniel, he yeah, well, brought up some stuff about the you know psychopathy and the um, and, I, and bringing it back to the analogy of a divorce between a couple. I mean, it's always you know I mean you have on the one hand you have the no fault divorce and it's like people just getting divorced because you know oh, my needs aren't being met or you know for trivial reasons that previous generations would just work through and it would be better for the you know the, the family unit the kids the larger you know community all that if people you know try to stay married in those situations and work through their stuff but then you have situations where you have a you know, psychopath, narcissist, whatever, that uh, is not like a normal marriage and the normal rules really don't apply. And, uh, you know, like in our culture, we've uh, highlighted male psychopathy so much, you know, and so people would be alert to that, like the guy standing up and, you know, like a, a Hitler type screaming and shouting and wanting people thrown in extermination camps and whatever, right? Uh, but, you know, we're we haven't focused on the feminine psychopathy as much and this and the, this the feminized version of psychopathy and narcissism that's taken over and is just as destructive but is more subtle and um you know so similarly in a marriage where uh you have a a female narcissist or psychopath you know all the norm it's, it's kind of one of those things where 
divorce sucks for everybody. And, you know, it's to say this somebody who is divorced, but sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, the alternative, it, you know, it's just the best of, of a bunch of bad possibilities. All of the possibilities kind of moving forward are bad. You can't go back to the, the image that you thought it was. It's kind of, if you stay, it's going to just get into worse dysfunction, worse, you know, for, for everybody, you know, a, a thing that this, the psychopath or the narcissist is going to, you know, they're, you know, that it's so harmful to everybody else involved that the best thing to do is to remove the psychopath. And it's like, if there's not a way to do that for whatever reason, sometimes the best thing, you know, to separate and put some barriers between yourself and the psychopath. Now, in the case of the red states, like Mark brought up, I don't know that, you know, there couldn't be a manipulation of the state level governments, but that's why I think the, I've come back to the founders uh, underlying vision, you know, in the, in the good of that, which is, you know, there, you know, there's two reasons to support like a democratic style government. One is thinking, you know, oh, everybody so needs to have their voice heard because they're so well-informed and so their opinion is so valuable and that's bullshit, you know. The, but the second is because people are so inherently corruptible that you have to break up concentrations of power to limit bad actors' ability to hijack them, you know, the levers of power and use them to inflict harm on others. And, you know, the situation we see now is, we've had the centralization of government and control. Now it's not just on the national level, on the global level, you know, I mean, look at COVID and the response to that and how remarkably uniform, you know, all the different nations responses to COVID were, you know, it was like almost like they all synchronized it at a global level. Right. So it's like, we have to break up these concentrations of power. I don't know what the best way to do that is. I don't think given the current system, the psychopaths that are currently running you know, the, the nation and, uh, you know, the, these globalist organizations like the WEF, I don't think they're going to just let us have our place and put up these, you know, firewalls to prevent them from harming us. And I think it is going to take a, a real divorce. And, you know, I wish it didn't, you know, I, I know that's going to suck and it will, who knows, we're entering like a, a area of real chaos and unpredictability if that happens. But as it is now, it's like we're in a fight and we have you know, this, the WEF has it, us in a chokehold and it's going to choke us out and then it's game over, right? If So it's either that or the possibility that we introduce something that's going to cause chaos, you know, uh, like in a fight, if somebody's got you in a chokehold, maybe throw both you and your you know, opponent down a flight of stairs and it may knock you out and then it's game over or you may knock them out. It's like just introducing that possibility that things could that things could not wind up in such a bad place for you. And I think that's where we're at here, where I would like to believe there's a way forward to work within the system and, and all that. I just don't see, you know, I'm not advocating people initiate it, but I just looking at the way things are going, I don't see this turning around before it gets to a point where, you know, it, it, we're, we're really faced with a USSR or Maoist China style, you know, communism here and you know that would be a fate worse than death so you know anyway i'll cede the floor to whoever is next i think john had his hand up yeah um so 
when Luke was kind of saying uh, um, that it, it seems kind of immature, I I kind of agree. Uh, but it seems to me that the mature immaturity is this sort of um, refusal to deal with reality, right? Um, so we we have this sort of very illegitimate system. Uh, I think in the U.S. after 2020, it's very difficult to um, sort of continue believing that if you just vote harder, uh, you can you can control the federal government. I think everything that's happened from 2016 through now has demonstrated that democracy is a dead letter in the U.S. Uh, and so then, you know, I think the national divorce thing comes into this sort of impulse to just kind of walk away because that is how you avoid conflict. But this ignores the fundamental nature of what Saldo calls turbo America. Um, you know, the U.S. does not leave other countries alone, right? It's always actively subverting them and trying to control their internal politics and so on. So, you know, if you had like a bunch of like a coalition of southern and heartland states kind of break off and go their own way, um, assuming they even succeeded in that, they would be treated exactly the same way as any other hostile foreign state uh, by by Washington, which means that you would be constantly dealing with subversive influence operations, attempted color revolutions, uh, the whole panoply of economic hitman tactics. They would not leave you alone. Um, you would not escape all of the things that are that you're trying to escape at all. The, the fundamental problem that you have is you have this, this poisonous hypocrisy, which is taken hold in Washington. And until it's rooted out, you know, you're not going to have any kind of peace. So, you know, is the mature solution to try and walk away? Or is it to do what is necessary to uh, remove that? And if it can't be removed through voting, and I think that's very clear, um, then you have to start thinking more fundamentally about power and how power works. You know, um, Doc earlier was kind of saying, well, what would you do about uh, in, in a national divorce situation about, you know, um, military uh, equipment, like all those, you know, tanks and fighter jets and so on on, on uh, federal military bases in the in the secessionist states. And my first thought was, well, you you grab that and dare them to take them away. You know, like it, it force majeure. This is ours now. You know, like ultimately that's how power works. Um, and I think it's kind of maybe going to come down to a similar thing. It's going to be like whoever manages to wrest control of the system uh, and establish a new form of legitimacy. One thing um, on democracy also in this kind of real politically. Uh, to my mind, the justification for some level of democracy has always been simply balance of power, that it is much easier to count hands, to count raised hands, than it is to count severed heads, as it were. So, you know, you, you sort of take a poll of the population and whichever side is biggest, you go, okay, you guys get your way because, you know, the, the alternatives fight it out. And then a lot of people die, potentially necessarily want that um 
But of course, historically, uh, the successful democratic systems have generally been the ones that strongly restricted the franchise to violence capable, violence capable males with um, some degree of economic uh, influence on the society. Um, you know, people who had actual measurable power and who should be kept happy. You know, slaves and freedmen and women did not get a vote. Foreigners did not get a vote. Right? It was a, you know just people who could knock heads you gave a vote to as a, as a purely practical matter. I think that's one of the problems we have now in this democratic system, actually, is that um, the franchise has been so diluted that, uh, you know, there's a real sense of frustration amongst um, a, a huge number of people in the U.S. and in other countries around the world, for that matter, where they cannot influence things democratically in any meaningful way. Um, and as that continues, especially to the degree to which that population that gets frustrated is precisely the violence-capable population, uh, eventually, you know, maybe they say, all right, well, we're just going to do it the old-fashioned way then. Um, so I don't know. I'm probably I'm probably venturing into dangerous territory here. It's very very difficult not to when you're talking about something like national force. But I've also been you know Kryptos's recent article about revolt and revolution uh, through the lens of Jacques Lull has me kind of thinking on this on these lines. Right. So basically, what I'm getting at is like, is the mature option national divorce? Or is the mature option revolt and revolution and seizing power and elevating, you know, red Caesar? Um, I don't really I think the, know the answer to that, but you know, <laughs> I I think that frankly, I think that the 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 mature answer can be found in Etienne uh, de la Bussy's, um discourse on voluntary servitude, which was written what five hundred years ago. Um, he had it down. He understood this notion that, uh, yes, of course, revolution seems so promising and so romantic and so final, and it's none of those things. Um, instead, what happens is um, nobody ends up with what they wanted at the end of these things. Uh, if we look at it, now, this is so I had like, actually, there was a lot of things I wanted to uh, cover, uh, including Dan's, I thought, excellent analogy, but incomplete analogy, uh, when he was talking about, so you're in an abusive marriage with an abusive spouse, and it's getting dangerous. Um, there are things that are happening that are spinning out of control. And so you say, okay, this needs to end. This current state of affairs can't, can't proceed as it has. Uh, it's not safe for any of us uh, physically or spiritually, right? And so then you get the divorce. But the divorce isn't usually not the end of it. Um, and I don't know how, how many of you are boxing fans, but the, do any of you remember a boxer named Edwin Vol Valero? A, uh, he was a Venezuelan boxer. Boxed, you know, he was a two-time champion in two different weight divisions throughout the odds, essentially, you know, throughout uh, the two, the, the, the two, from 2001 to 2010, this guy was dominant. And I used to write... <laughs> believe it or not, for a popular boxing blog. I was a commentator. 
um, and a sort of an analyst and somebody that like came afterwards to say, okay, what did we just see here? What did we just see there? Um, I, I writ, wrote quite a bit about Edwin Valera back in the day because he was someone that was constantly, quite obviously, physically abusing his wife. And it was getting very scary. And I, and I told uh, my readers, I said, like, I think this is going to end quite badly. Because what happened was from he moved from population to population. He started out in Venezuela. He was beating this woman in Venezuela. Uh, he left for Cuba. He was beating this woman in Cuba. Uh, throwing her down flights of stairs, all of those things that we're talking about. And so I said, like, this is going to end quite badly because they keep they keep excusing this person. They keep pushing him right along until he will murder her. And that's exactly what happened after they divorced, after the final straw when she was in a hospital, uh, essentially on a ventilator for a while, um, um, busted up beyond belief. And so what happened was they forgave him one last time and then he killed her. And so the moral of the story to me is that this idea of a national divorce, right, will invent exactly the kind of the, the, the fullest version of that enemy, right? We all, we all know the stories about like some of these past um, versions of purges and, and political uprisings and their, their reactionary states. We know tales of people getting their tongues pulled out, people being burned at the stake. And like we we are fools to think that this could not happen with this crowd because what we would be in divide in in drawing those hard battle lines of a national divorce and they would be battle lines no matter what we thought of it no matter what agreements we thought we 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 had reached with these people ultimately I think what would happen is they would cross those lines they would come for us and here's a reason why think about who would be on that side of that line. Think who you would be almost driving there. You would be driving um, uh, people who are heavily in favor of abortion on demand. You'd be driving um, the rainbow crowd, most of whom are non-reproductive. So you'd have like you'd have a labor crisis, you'd have a population crisis, you'd have a competence crisis beyond what you would ever what was imaginable before. Would this would supersede all of that? This would expand beyond anything of our imagining. So you'd have they. This would be a nation of rolling blackouts and um, uh, you know uh, food shortages and constant rage. And so my question is not can that be done or should it be done. My question is would we be ready to do it by the time we draw we drew those lines? That's a real strategic question. That's a pragmatic question. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that a national divorce isn't isn't conceptually, at least, it makes sense conceptually, but pragmatically, it's sort of like once that Rubicon is crossed, you are unleashing hell on one side of that divide, and are you ready to confront hell? And as I, you know, as I look amongst the black pilled masses and the various gray pilled and all of these other elements of the dissident right, I'm saying like we have not got our shit together yet. We really haven't. We're not really ready. We think we are because, again, you know, to be on the side of the righteous is to think like, well, okay, so like uh, God will, God will provide is like is sometimes what we think. But again, like the God that I'm coming to know knows that we need to provide for ourselves as well. That we we can't just we can't if we're going to do something, strategy must be a part of it. It must be. We can't just ignore it and just flippantly say it'll all work out in the end. 
And, 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 and I realize maybe I'm a heretic for saying that, but I really do believe that part of what's going on here is that we were given minds for a reason. And part of that mind was to say, let us ex- exercise judgment and prudence. Let's look at the situation realistically in a way that our enemy can't and then decide when best to act. So if we move too prematurely and saying like, okay, we're gonna go have our freedom-loving civilization over here and all the tyrants and their thralls will be on the other side, they will come for us. They they will come for our children in a way, in 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 a lot of very real ways, in the sense that like, again, it's sort of like you have a barren population on one side where the clock's ticking. And they, when when they say things, when they when they march under those banners and they say things like, ten uh, percent is not enough, groom, groom, groom," or where they where, where they actually say, "We're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children," you know, it's like, why don't we take them at their word for that? They're actually saying they're saying that you people are the baby creators, and we want your product because the product is important to reify our identity or whatever yeah liberals, like, liberals don't have liberals don't have kids don't have their own kids they have yours saying goes right um, yeah but the, I mean, this is That's kind of what, what i'm getting, getting at this is, this is what i was getting at like everything you're saying is, is like so okay you have this national divorce you have this secession movement great okay and you think they're going to leave you alone like i don't think they will right i think you're exactly right about that um which then sort of changes the calculus in terms of okay what is the actual strategic move to be made here uh and you know this in a sense like this whole conversation we're having here is part of a a very old conversation that goes back a long time in the american political uh tradition uh particularly on the right um where you know you can find people kind of like larping about like what would happen in the new like red versus blue civil war or whatever you know (laughs) like 10, 20 years, 30 years back. Um, and, you know, one, one thing that's kind of perennial with that is that the, the combat experience and the sort of uh, consumer firearms are in pretty much entirely on uh, the red side of the ledger. And that's become something of a joke in recent years because you know, nothing has happened, right? So like everyone kind of like laughs at uh, conservative Americans, like, oh, you know, you guys are, ne- you're, you guys are never going to do anything. You know, it's all just talk. Um, but I think there's an element there um, of precisely this kind of maturity that you were talking about, Mark, uh, where exactly, precisely because um, you have so many combat veterans in Red America. They know what that looks like. Like a lot of these guys, they have been to these third world shitholes. They have seen what civil conflict turns into, how ugly it gets, right? Uh, they know what it means when you can't get medicine, when the power is only on for a couple hours a day, if you're lucky, when when potable water is a scarce resource in the city, when brutal ethnic conflict is escalated to the level that people are getting burned alive in the public square. You know, they, they've seen this kind of thing or the fallout from it, and they do not want to go there. They don't want that happening in their own country. So they're kind of in this situation where if they chose as a group to escalate, uh, 
to the level of armed conflict, they would almost certainly win. But they know the price that would be paid by them and by everyone else would be so terrible that they don't go for that nuclear option. And then the result, though, is that the left just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes because they, they do not have this level of maturity. They don't really, they're like a child poking at a bear that is well-mannered enough that it doesn't really want to kill the kid by swatting it. But at the same time, it's getting really annoyed, you know? Um, so then, you know, the bear kind of thinks like, well, maybe if I just wander over to that other part of the forest and this kid, this annoying kid will leave me alone. Uh, but then the kid doesn't leave him alone. <laughs> you know, that's kind of, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, so I think the whole national divorce question, it really comes down to, it's almost like the sort of last, last ditch sort of thought experiment that conservative America is running with itself where, you know, because they had the Hail Mary pass with Trump in the flight 93 election. They saw how that worked out. The other side just, you know, uh, ended up just blatantly stealing the 2020 election just in broad daylight, hands right in the cookie jar, looking into the, uh, it, it, looking everyone right in the eye and saying, oh no, we didn't steal anything. Uh, you know, and it's like, okay, well, you know, they're not, they're, they'll, they'll just keep doing that since they had no consequences for it. Uh, so you're not going to vote someone in again. Like, that's just not happening. That's been closed off. All right. Well, you know, the only other option to avoid armed conflict at this point would be secession. But wait, is that actually even plausible? Would the other side leave you alone? The answer, when you think about it for more than a few seconds is no, they would not. They absolutely would not. Um, so, yeah, it's. Uh, and in that sense, it, we we need to. That means we we need to get our shit together. It, it it does mean that the impetus is on us. Like the interesting thing is that we're equipped to handle that responsibility. Or we found our way there, some of us. But it's sort of like there's 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 this trepidation. There's this there's this idea that like maybe we could get out of this somehow like maybe somehow uh and, and that's magical it's thinking it's, it's a, magic it's, it's magical thinking it's, it's a stage of the grief right <laughs> you know correct like, yeah you know, you know denial bargaining right like we did and and it's yeah and so we and so and so um i think what we should be doing more than engaging in fantasy wait i see grant's hand is up actually let me go to grant let's go to you it's been up there for a while but so it's it's a false dichotomy like this idea that since the 2016 election and like the, you know Trump wasn't able to accomplish much and then 2020 was stolen oh therefore they'll always be stolen so just give up and don't don't take the only fucking course of action that is the way through this so the idea that that we don't have any political solutions when the strategic uh engagement on the enemy's side was pervasive and like all across the board mark elias going state to state uh changing um state election laws like like the degree to which uh they were coordinated you know the covid 19 pandemic allowing for mass mail-in balloting um the billions of dollars 
coming from uh, elaborate fraud schemes that had huge uh, setup horizons like FTX. Like the idea that the enemy can just replicate that over and over and over again in the face of opposition is absurd. I mean, they barely, barely won. And with, with all that and with virtually no opposition. So just to say, oh, yeah, now the, the only choice is national divorce or violence, I think it's silly. I think that we have not tried to strategically engage in the political sphere um, in a manner that's anywhere close to effective, um, anywhere close to the, to the scale. And frankly, I don't think that we would have to at the scale that the enemy's been able to. I think that we could do it at a fraction of the scale. And since we're, you know, essentially the rules, it's, it's democracy, and we're dealing with a huge asymmetry in what is popular. Uh, you know, like there's a political way to, to do it. It's like, people aren't even fucking trying, frankly. Um, just all, you know, accepting the uniparty false dichotomy between, you know, Republican and Democrat, thinking that Republicans don't fix their own primaries to pick establishment candidates that are going to be sympathetic to the regime. Like, don't you think that's somewhat changing, though, Grant? I've I've got a sense in the last that's year and saying. a half that's changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Is it's it's changing. I'm involved. If it, dude, if I'm involved, then there's a lot of people that are involved. I know other people that are involved. People are frustrated, and like especially on the veteran side, like John said, you know, people that really understand that we don't want this to come to a violent conclusion. Understand that it's now or never, that if we don't go all in on trying to find a political solution, then we are fucked, you know? And so, like, will it be hard? Uh, yeah. Is it, is it possible that, that we're not going to be able to figure out a way through? Yeah, that's always possible. But to just, like, this attitude on the dissident right that, oh, well, they stole it, and so they're always just going to steal it, so I guess I might as well not vote. Like, the enemy wants that more than anything. That's all they need. All they need is for you to, to be demoralized and give well, up. I certainly, I certainly wouldn't say that no one should vote. I think that's retarded. Um, but it's that's that it's is a, it's a it's a weapon consistent. in the arsenal. Yeah, I would I would more say that like given the the the, the brazenness with which they acted in 2020, uh, the probability that they will do the same and subsequent elections is very high so one should not rely on that strategy alone which i don't and you weren't saying that, that anyone should um obviously like you, you you press forward along multiple strategies or along mul multiple uh vectors of attack um and you always look for the peaceful political ways of achieving your goals before relying on armed violence obviously um I think in a sense, like actually I think the dissident right is getting more mature about this. So rather than exclusively trying to rely on electoral politics, there's an increasing focus on uh, economic power, on cultural power, um, meme power, you know, like winning hearts and minds, as the phrase goes, uh, removing the um, moral and political legitimacy of the regime insofar as it does manage to cling to political power through dirty means. You sort of point that out to people, you make it seem okay, you're not really legitimate. Um, 
which they is all, much they, they more. All feed in. They all feed. They, they, they all feed, feed they, exactly. They all feed in. They, all feed, they absolutely yeah. all feed in. Uh, so it's it's a part of that. Yeah. The electoral politics thing is a part of what creates dilemmas for the enemy. So like that's the easiest way to conceive of it. Like it's a battle of will, and they have strategic objectives. They are very good at deploying large, uh, large pools of capital and uh, leveraging the legal system as it is in order to achieve their ends. And we just need to do the same things in accordance with our principles. And oh, it just so happens that our principles, I, I believe, conform better to reality the narratives that we operate under are closer to reality. To give one example, the fact that we acknowledge that there are differences between individuals, there are differences between men and women generally. That's just a small example of something that's like, it's pervasive across the board with the narratives that govern our side versus the enemy's side. And if we can put the same energy into combating um, the enemy, you know, so that we can achieve what we want, which is freedom, like ne negative freedoms, essentially living in accordance with natural law, then uh, I think that we're going to be successful without violence. You know, I, and it's, I, I think it's still very possible. I, I mean, the one, the one, the way that I see there being success nonviolently is how the Soviet Union came down and the Eastern Bloc more generally. Which actually wasn't entirely nonviolent. I mean, you had some executions, you had some, you know, tanks rolling on on Moscow, um, but by and large, it was surprisingly bloodless, uh, and it it all came down to just a, a total uh, public collapse in in faith in the institutions and the legitimacy of the government. Um, yeah, but, but there was an underlying structure in place there, John. Like the fallback yeah. was what? GAE. The fallback was was the was global uh, home. Uh, yeah, yeah, but you well, to a degree, right? I mean, you also had what you, you so in the case of Czechia, for instance, you have the the parallel polis, which was kind of a homegrown thing. Um in the in the Soviet system, the fallback was 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 gangsterism and whatever remnants of the correct, system correct who, who were uh, who were linked into that global homo network absolutely who were, who were right. part you know absolutely so what's the fallback for us right so you know we have whatever homegrown things we're able to put together uh and then you have frankly um you know foreign uh um well but but in the case of the u.s i think it's a little bit different Right. So in the Soviet Union, you had this totalizing ideology that had completely dominated the country for uh, almost a century and had all wiped out all public traces of the previous political order. In the US, we have this very strange hybrid system where you have the old republic, right? The US Constitution and federalism and all of that, which is you know, publicly paid lip service to by the regime and, you know, privately is very dear to the heart of a majority of the American population, at least half of it. Um, and then you have, uh, this has been hybridized with the kind of second constitution, the civil rights uh, 
kind of constitution that came out in the 1960s. Um, and that's, you know, your affirmative action and it's culminated in wokeness. And, you know, this is, and so there's this tension in the US is, is kind of the point, which is kind of very different from what you had at the end of the Soviet, at the end of the Soviet system. Um, yeah, I think, so- I think there's tension, but I think that I, I wouldn't sign on to that exact uh, paradigm split with the Civil Rights Act because that was passed. So that's constitutional now. So like if you if you want to if you want to say there's a split, I think it all comes down to censorship and AI driven censorship and the way that populist voices are censored. So it's like you said about lip service. Right. So like this is the situation that we're in. If we I think it's really comes down to this. And if, if we can get past it, then we're going to be victorious. I think that um, the the legitimacy that the current regime Uh, thinks that it has is all dependent upon censorship and censoring populist voices. So I think populist voices on both the right and the left are, you add them together and they're massively demotic. So like the vast majority of Americans are either populist right or populist left at their core, even if they can't articulate exactly what that means. And um, those voices are being systematically suppressed and the narratives that support those positions and the minds of the populace are being suppressed using proxies. So initially the proxy was uh, Russian disinformation. And so that, that proxy of Russian disinformation, when they say, hey, we got to censor Russian disinformation, what they were really talking about in the 2015 to 2016 timeframe was we have to silence populist voices. And then the censorship apparatus, this is all listed out. Like they specifically target populist uh, voices. Now the predicate, the justification for that censorship has to do with national security. Oh, well, we can't let Russians control our elections, right? That then we've lost our country. It's critical to national security. We got to censor it. And that's persuasive to people that don't know better once you lay that predicate out. And it, it definitely, uh, Like you have to have that in the liberal West because freedom of speech is part of what we do. And if the government is violating the First Amendment rights of Americans, everybody kind of senses that that's unacceptable. But if they're uh, silencing dangerous misinformation that is coming from the Russian government for the reasons of national security, it's okay. So I think if people understand this game, then it all becomes very clear. And the next one's the democracy predicate, where they, they supplant the, the collective will of individuals, where it's like, hey, what's popular with individuals, to the collective will of institutions, democratic institutions, right, which is all the ones that they control. So anybody that advocates for a policy or supports a narrative that undermines legitimacy of those institutions, well, they're enemies of democracy, and they got to be suppressed. So it's like, if people can just understand this game that's being played by these postmodernist shit weasels and the policy apparatus of censorship, um, I, I really don't think it's that complicated. You wrap your head around that, and I think that that's that's the end of the game. Because then did you, you can- did you guys see like uh, speaking of censorship, which I, and Grant, I totally agree that this is very central to preference falsification and uh, consent manufacturing. Um, did you guys notice what happened on Twitter yesterday? Yeah, that's that's related because yeah, like, that's a, a everything that was being scraped, like that's the 
one of the yes. principal mechanisms by which they control narratives. Exactly. They, they so they develop models for like yes. what the narratives are, how they spread. In That's order the to training, the training data yeah. for the the machine learning models, which are used to identify, um, you know, social media nodes that are spreading malinformation or what have you. Uh, and now so, you guys then, know why I'm always saying, uh, get the fuck off of Twitter. Yes. Yeah, what okay, the fuck yeah, are we right, doing yeah. on Twitter? On a daily basis, so, I, I think Mark is so that, that, but I found like Elon Musk's reaction to this intriguing um, because basically, well, I mean, there was a, so someone tweeted out like an analysis, just like sort of um, uh, describing how this data, this scraped data is used to feed the machine learning systems that are used for censorship, or the censorship death star, as he put it. Uh, and then, you know, Elon Musk responded with, a bullseye emoji so you know i think he understands how this is being used and he's and twitter is like kind of the website they like to use to do this because it's all open um there's not a, there's there's no strong split between users and audience there everyone is both uh so it's very useful for for tracking narrative emergence and social networks social like network graphs and things like that um and Musk has taken that over. He seems to be interfering with the establishment's censorship apparatus quite a bit uh, and becoming more sophisticated in how he does it, which is causing disruptions at Twitter, which is annoying in the short term. But um, so, I mean, I, I, I bring this all this up because like that kind of gets back to that point again about, you know, power. What is power? You know, uh, it's not just voting, of course. And um, I think moves like that are the kinds of things that actually could prevent violence in the long run, because if he can sufficiently interfere with the regime's ability to, um, to manage the narrative, uh, then their ability to escalate and defend their legitimacy and silence opposing voices and, and all of it starts to degrade very rapidly. Just like in the Soviet Union, you had the, you know, the the inability of the FSB to prevent or the KGB to prevent, uh, you know, Samizdat from circulating, which you know basically gradually or or prevent uh, Radio Free America from broadcasting across the border, things like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying so. <laughs> I'm not saying that it will definitely come to violence. Um, I think that's a strong possibility. Uh, I sort of think of it this way, <clears throat> um, to go back to the whole like, national divorce thing in general. Um, if you look at almost any national liberation movement in history, and arguably the, the, the populist struggles in America and in the West right now are, are in fact national liberation struggles. Um, because most of our countries have been taken over by this kind of you know, globalist uh, serpent, the, you know, the, this dark brotherhood of reptiles who have like sort of slimed their way into power and just subverted them and kind of conquered us through the back door. And now we've all found ourselves subject to this thing that we don't control and it sucks and we want to free ourselves. So you know, it's not the, the weeds, the weeds in the garden, the weeds in the garden that were planted while we were yes. sleeping, yeah, you know, no, exactly. and so and yeah, 
Yeah. And so, so and so, like, my point is, is that like our instinct is to grab these weeds and pull them out, and we're going to throw away the wheat with the chaff. And like that's what I see mostly with this national divorce debate, which seems at times to me to be childish, um, but uh, or or delusional, where I'm just sort of like, no, 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 we're just waking up. Like I have a feeling so many of us are just waking up, myself included. I'm not I'm not excluding myself from that group. You know, I'm not somebody that has been long awake. I have no, I have it's, I have it's, it's, it's interesting because like, that's like that the people are waking up and there's so many people are waking up. So I, I've been hearing that actually both on 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 right and left kind of sources for like man, like a long time now, like over a decade. Uh Man, I think it's actually been continuously true that entire time because it is this sort of like exponential process um, or, you know, in practice, self-limiting by population size. So it's an S-curve, but whatever. Uh, the point being that we're still in this, in this phase and have been for years and years now where at any given time, there are more people who have recently kind of had their eyes opened than there were before. So it all, it's continuously, but, you know, for people who have been kind of like really paying attention for like many, many, many years, sort of like, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are waking up. <laughs> um, but I think, I think there is definitely, I think there is truth to that. Uh, the thing is you, you get to potentially a certain level of that and, and you can have a kind of mass refusal to continue the way things are, which is kind of how the Soviets were brought down, maybe that could happen here. And we, it's possible we're seeing the first signs of that, you know? Um, you got some some legal victories, like in the Supreme Court, striking down affirmative action, for example. Uh, you've got all of these parents who are, you know, like um, pushing back hard against the, the rainbow stuff in the elementary schools and the high schools. Um, yeah, they, in the Soviet system, they didn't have a political means of fixing it. Like, we we do. It's in place. We just got to use it aggressively. You know, it, like the Soviets, it was kind of like all or nothing. They didn't have this stepwise, uh, you know, they, they didn't have political freedom, you know. Or uh, even even no Soviets do. Were, I mean, the Soviets did have more than we often credit them with. So it was a one party state explicitly, yes. Um, but then again, America is an implicit one party state. Uh, but you know, you could join the party, you could work your way up inside the party. And a lot of the dissidents actually were party members um, who were sort of like working against it from the inside. Uh, so there, there were avenues that you could use in the Soviet system to exercise some degree of, um, of pushback. But you know, I, I don't disagree that it was much more controlled uh, than the Americans because the Russians yes. have always been more top down in the territory. What you guys were saying about uh, people waking up, uh, you know, more in mass. I mean, I think the the worst thing that ever happened to whatever this you want to call it, the globalist regime, the worst thing that happened was that they got what they wanted, everything they wanted in 2020, you know, and it, it was like a Pyrrhic victory because it really you know, wakened a lot of people from their dogmatic slumbers of thinking, you know, everything's okay. And, you know, things are just still functioning the way they always have been. It's like, you know, it's a real wake up call. Uh, and one of the things I guess 
if we can get past, because this is going to be a big thing, some of, you know, 20, the 2024 election, it's going to be kind of a make or break thing in some ways, or it could be because, you know, I mean, just depending on how it goes down and we're at a state where there's so much uh, kindling that's built up that a match could really set it going. And, uh, you know, if we, if we can get past that, the long term, I think, looks good because, you know, the left, they're not having kids. And also the, the kids today, for them, you know, uh, you know, it used to be that it was exciting or heterodox or edgy to be on the left. And now it's like that's the most stodgy, square, conformist thing you could be, you know. So the kids, I mean, I got a, a couple of middle schoolers were once going into high school and just seeing my own children at the, at, at entering the teenage years and some of their friends and cousins. And it's, it's like they for, for them, if you're a free thinker or heterodox or rebellious, you go to the right because that's where the, the interesting action is. And so that's something they've lost that energy that they had, you know, in the, in the sixties, a lot of the counterculture that was on the left, it seemed cool because, you know, you had great music, you had, you know, interesting uh, literature or art or whatever. And it's like, you have none of that on the left today, you know? So, so long-term, I think that looks really good. It's just, you've got the next few years where, uh, you know, if we can get through the next couple of election cycles, you know, without things going to shit, you know, we, it may look good, uh, you know, long-term. One of the other things that hasn't been mentioned yet is uh, the financial system and the role that that plays. Uh, I think a lot of the anger, you know, it's like when things are corrupt and things work, people can put up with some corruption. You know, it's like if, if you know that the mayor is, is on the take, skimming off the top, but the city basically works, it's like people will look past that or be willing to tolerate it a lot more than if everything's just dysfunctional and the mayor's obviously incompetent. And, you know, and so we see that in the country as a whole, like post, you know, I mean, beginning with, uh, you know, obviously there's incompetence going back even further, but, you know, with the Iraq war, and the lies that that was sold to us using and how expensive that was. Uh, and then followed up by the financial crisis and the way the banks got bailed out and nobody else did. And there was just this new normal of the fed just printing money and giving it to the banksters, you know, and, and, and meanwhile, it's like the regular people are, are making do with less and less, uh, you know, as uh, I guess Harrison had the article recently about the, reviewing Peter Turchin's book where he's talking about the precariat class, you know, more and more people find themselves in that with fewer long-term economic prospects, more debt and seeing how rigged the system is. And then two, how dominant the financial system is, which doesn't produce anything. It just extracts wealth, you know? So the, somehow that's got to get fixed where there's, there's gotta be in it, you know, the, with all the debt in the system, that's going to be tough. You know, uh, yeah, so I was about to say, Daniel, yeah, like, is it even wealth that they're extracting or is it IOUs? You know, like I, I had a in, in New York City, for example, they just launched a program where they're they have a, a system of um, vending machines around the city now that are dispensing Narcan and crack pipes. And <laughs> soon uh, they're going to be dispensing, um, you know, uh, syringes. And so, like, I'm saying to myself, OK, so this system is funded, supposedly. Right. In other words, because the the addicts are allowed to go up to the system and just get it for free. They could just say IOU, literally. 
and put in any name, Mickey Mouse, whatever. Anyway, so that's our system. That's like a microcosm or a fractal echo of what's happening, right? Where it's sort of like, we say that they're seizing our wealth, but we don't really have wealth. Well, what, what they're seizing is promise, with, with promissory that, notes. Yeah. Somebody's producing it. I mean, because there's like some oh. goods and services like that go into like making this crack pipe that's in the vending machine. I mean, just as an example. Absolutely. You know, so, so there's real goods and services and somehow we're just printing a bunch of money and the people yeah. that get the money, they're using that to pay for real goods and services that other people have to produce. And so that is extracting wealth. Um, anyway, it is. It's extracting time. It's extracting time. That, like, I agree. Like, it, which is a kind of wealth. But like, my, I guess my point is, okay, so like, I agree with you guys in general that um, you should still, that voting is not worthless, right? On the surface of it, I say like, yeah, of course you should vote. Um, and then, there, but to steel me on that just a little bit, let's look at the other side of it. The other side says, why would you do that? Why would you, this, this, this is, this is a Janus-based demon, this whole Republican Democratic um uh, supposed divide in the country, they will say, no, this is, th- these are two sides of the same evil coin. And why would you promote either one of them? Because eventually what they're going to do is point that and say, ah, you've already legitimized what I was going to do anyway. And I can remember times in my life where the Republicans held uh, the executive and the legislative bodies. And I thought to myself, okay, so what are you going to do with it? You going to do something now? And you know what? Every time I, I saw that, no, what they're going to do is they're going to do the same thing that that every faction of our so-called government or every so-called faction of our government does every time, which is expand their powers, uh, you know, pay off friends and protect them, uh, punish enemies. You know, it's sort of like like there's a point of there's a point. In other words, there's a part of me that says I get people that say, no, you're not getting my vote. Because my vote will just be used against me at a certain point. Because at a certain point, my vote will be used to say, ah, well, you legitimize this with your vote. I get that. I vote get the idea that people are... Right in, rather than not... Right, well... Yeah. Dude, it's, right. dude, it's not... But that's... Like, I get it, because I've, I've probably held that position before, but it's like if you get robbed at gunpoint, and they're like, you have a choice. You can be your wallet or your watch. And you you decide, and they're like, okay, well, you decided to give them your watch, and so therefore you consented, and that was a, a legitimate transaction. It's like, give me a break, you know. That's that's not the case. It's uh, should be understood that you're choosing from the available options. But with respect to like picking between two uh, like two faces of the same demon, like that's why getting involved in the primary process and trying to break the rigid systems by which establishment candidates are selected um, in the in the primary process for both parties uh, and, and, you know, name the state, right? Um, so that you can end up with the ability to choose an individual. It's not like the parties are, that are the solution. It's going to be individual candidates that are, have solid character, you know? Um, I, I agree. I agree. I tried like, to steal I mean, man it. Yeah. I, so, I mean, the corruption, though, in the in the elections is, is it can be a huge issue. You can have it. So in the red states, right, you can have like fairly clean election laws and good oversight and all of that. And oh, look at this, like overwhelmingly for the red candidate. And then you have your blue states where it's as corrupt as all hell. And, you know, they, they, they cover the windows so you can't see the vote and they won't let observers from the side in to look at it. 
and you know the drop boxes and just you know we all know like you know all the all the things they were doing and it's all totally totally legal according to blue state election regulations um so then you know the red states look at that and they say well you guys are are cheating and and making the cheating legal you're rigging the system so you keep you keep winning and uh that i think it it makes it very difficult to for that system to to remain legitimate of course but then the problem is that because they have participated in it as like mark was saying they've legitimated the uh the system in the first place um I don't know. I mean, like, honestly, as as a Canadian, like, I, I think you guys are kind of lucky in the fact that you, you either are having this conversation at such a uh, in, in such a vigorous way at the national level, like here in Canada. My God, man, it's so much worse. Yeah, like, you guys are you guys are boned. I I, I would are, not be I would not we, be we as are, optimistic. Like, dude, I, it is know. it is what. Well, there's no pro- there's no real prospect for like no one's even talking about national books, seriously like, that's not even really on on the menu. Uh, there's no energy there. And then like uh, in terms of like you know getting good people into parliament, like like don't make me laugh. Like we have a separatist party in Quebec, which isn't even trying to separate anymore. We have a far left party. We have another far left party. We have a third far left party, and then we have a left of right of left of center party. And like those are our options. You know, and oh yeah, there's the People's Party of Canada, which is kind of like some little like weird graft between Trump populism and libertarianism, which has so far managed managed to fail to put a single person, a single member of parliament into uh into Ottawa. So like I mean there's just and then you no and real... you have something like the, the the truckers, the truckers protest, which I yeah. would say is something like that you have something in Canada that's more like civil disobedience and parallel systems. That was uh, that thinking. was such a that no that that was such a bolt out of the blue. Um, like that was so completely out of out of national character. Although, I'm actually you know I say that as an Ontarian because we tend to be very go along get along here. But now that I think about it, the truckers' protest was launched from the Western states, who actually do have a uh, tradition of sort of grassroots populist. Uh, resistance to centralized social engineering authority. It goes a long way back to like the farmers associations of the early 20th century, um, the social credit and things like that. Uh, so maybe that was kind of international character, but still, like that was that was, and it was effective. It was. And it, it was, was effective. It was incredibly. It, it, it was incredibly effective. Yes. Yes. Um, it yeah. got the government to change policy. Now, mind you, the principals who were involved in that are paying the price to this day. Um, you know, like their bank accounts were shut down, thrown in jail. Like, you know, this is bad. They I mean, were pretty badly persecuted. So, I mean, the government got that's, the, that's the price. That's the price. That, that is the price exactly. And actually, you know, if you and if you listen to interviews with um, well, with leaders, like they're. Uh, they're not. They, they they have no regrets. You know, like they they understand what they were getting into. Um, but you know that was just you know that and that was effective at getting like one set of policies removed, getting the government to stand down. But I mean, there's so many other issues. That, but it had it you know, had an impact globally though. We had so we had a million we had a million immigrants come into this country in 2022. A million, 3.5 percent increase in our population 
one goddamn year. And that's after year after year after year of a 1% increase in the population. So uh, I, got, I, got a, I got a strategy for Canadians that they can employ. All right. So what, what you guys become can do. The, become, the fifth, become the 51st through uh, 60th no, no, states. No, no, no. It's a longer, longer game than that. So what you do, <laughs> there's a new policy, right, that allows you to join the U.S. military, get citizenship real quick. All right. So you come mm-hmm. down here, you help us out, you help us uh, restore American norms, and then <laughs> work to apply diplomatic pressure to Canada. Um, in order for them to quit being, you know, a, a socialist. Well, this is why this is why, as a Canadian, I'm I'm fairly invested in America getting its shit unfucked because, uh, you know, not just that you're a pretty powerful country and you're that would be good for the world, but also, you know, frankly, like we need America leaning on Ottawa real hard to get its shit together. And right now, it's quite the opposite. Like America's just like happy to. Uh, uh, let it, Canada spiral off into liberal insanity because that's Washington's official policy too. Canada's just you know three steps ahead um, as a as a laboratory for rainbow liberalism. Uh, so yeah, but I mean you know like at least you guys are able to have this conversation in a serious way and like really think about these things as as, as an actual possibility. Um, as bad as things are in the U.S. You know, I think we saw this during the coronavirus as well, uh, where with the exception of a couple of countries like, you know, Sweden and like Belarus, like every, you know, uh, Western and European and Euro-colonial country on the planet just went full retard, went full koala bear on like uh, on all of the COVID madness. In the U.S., it was like some states did, the government did. But a lot of states didn't because you still have this strong federalist um, thing there. So you, you get all, a lot of Americans, they're like, oh, like we're so screwed. Like it's such a tyranny here. And there's an element of truth to that. The blue states really are that way. But because of the federal structure, um, they haven't been. And because of the Second Amendment, frankly, I think it's a huge, huge factor. Uh, the government has not been able to fully impose itself across the country. And that's. Whereas everyone else, like we don't have a First Amendment, we don't have Second Amendment, we don't have meaningful federalism, you know, like little little structural examples to compare between Canada and the U.S. For example, uh, in the U.S., when a town incorporates, it owns itself, basically. Um, Like, you know, the government can obviously like state law applies, federal law applies, you have eminent domain, things like that. But, you know, fundamentally, like the town runs itself in Canada, you're basically renting crown land. And if the state decides that your town doesn't exist anymore, it doesn't exist anymore. So the province can come in and say, um, oh, we're going to amalgamate your township with another township. And there's nothing you can do about that. Well, it's the same here now, though, after Kilo versus New London. Like we had a decision 20 years ago where it was eminent domain became hyper powered, supercharged where they just said like, well, you know, guess what? Like these new developers that are coming in, they're going to bring in more tax revenues than your little Hamlet will. And so the Supreme Court at the time, which was of a different composition, said, mm. yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, as like, get more ta- a, a bigger tax base off of like some kind of a, 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 a development scheme that included a bunch of commercial properties. They said, that's enough. This is 25 yeah. years ago at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. And so, like, enough. we're in the same you, boat. You guys, you guys also have sheriffs, you know, so you, you actually can elect your own law enforcement people and they're accountable to you. Um, but, Luke, I think you wanted to say something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, we thought let's uh, close it. And um, I mean, maybe we can still do a part two if we feel like I think there, there's still um, a lot to be said. Um, let's talk about it. But yeah, just um, as my uh, kind of closing remark again, I think. Um, it was really fascinating to to hear what what you guys talked about. You know, I'm again I'm a bit of an outsider here as a as a European uh, uh, se uh, satellite state of the empire. Um, but I think I can. I mean, I think all of all of these different avenues that you guys described are really worth pursuing, and and I totally share Grant's um, you know like stance that we shouldn't be like we should never exclude possibilities right from the get-go i mean reality is just too fluid and too crazy you know i mean for all we know like elections can change everything you know i mean um it's it's not like guaranteed obviously you know but who knows and uh and the same thing goes for other strategies right for other things um we can do but ultimately you know my, my kind of take is um that all of that might be successful and uh, that's great right but even if it's not and to be honest um i don't see a lot of solutions that don't involve things getting worse first <laughs> before they're getting better but even so you know like even if that's the case um this is all like it, like crucial training for whatever might come right uh, because Again, I think we, we just don't realize how not ready we are, you know, for all kinds of stuff. I mean, imagine just, you know, like, I don't know, like from bank runs to like sparse food, drinking water, you know, like financial collapse and I mean, uh, violence, uh, whatever, you know, it's like, there's just so much, so many things that can go down. And that's why, you know, I think it's, it's, super important the way the Harrison's work for example like just to learn about the psycho psychological issues that are, are like universal right and they they play themselves out during like revolutionary moments during crisis um things like that you know like they're, they're, there's stuff to learn you know and and even like the you know what what I'm trying to do the more philosophical uh spiritual angle you know like um thinking about that kind of stuff to to have a wider perspective and and all of that and and also like the practical stuff right the the training ground um trying trying all kinds of avenues thinking about it like being smart being mature about it you know doing things all of that is um i see it you know as worthwhile no matter what happens um even if shit goes down pretty hard um that's our only way you know if, if we are prepared on 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 all fronts and not fall you know for the next uh stupid revolutionary you know like who makes things worse or like um getting involved in or entangled in kind in all kinds of stupid games and, and end up with the uh, the wrong leaders and you know, all of that stuff um or just to survive, you know, like frankly. <laughs> so yeah, so that's uh, kind of my my closing remark, and uh, yeah. All right, with that, we'll close it out. Um, yeah, we might we might do a part two because there's the, this is fertile ground, and it's and it's fun 
when we don't all like 100% agree with each other. I think we all agree with each other way more often than not. So it's fun when there's some, some things to really discuss. But uh, thanks y'all for tuning in and we'll see you next time.